Garden for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Doug Schoen, author of the new book, Putin on the March, the Russian President's Unchecked Global Advance. As one of the world's preeminent political consultants, pollsters, and pundits, Doug really needs no introduction, but I would be remiss if I didn't add that Doug is one of the most selfless and generous people you will ever come across in the rough-and-tumble world of politics. So, Doug, I want to thank you first for your friendship, and then thank you for joining us today. Well, I appreciate that very, very kind introduction, and I would say that uh, uh, whatever kindnesses I have offered you have been more than reciprocated by your not only graciousness, by your also piercing uh, intellect as well. So it's always a pleasure. Well, I really appreciate that. Let's jump right in here to Putin on the March. What is it that possessed you to write this book? You've been writing a lot about Russia over the last several years. Why Putin on the March at this time? Well, I I have felt for a long time that um, commentators had really mischaracterized uh, what Putin was doing in the U.S. election. Uh, The initial assessment by Democrats was, oh, Putin elected Trump, and the Republicans saying, no, Putin didn't elect Trump. What I believe Putin was trying to do uh, was less elect one candidate or another, though I believe he did want Trump to win, but rather to pit Americans against Americans, to polarize, to divide, and ultimately to weaken our nation. The title of my new book, uh, as you know, is Putin on the March. And what I'm suggesting is that this was part of a global plan that Putin has been uh, implementing to basically exert Russian influence around the world. And I would say the American project has been an unqualified success. And, And Russia has always sought to sow discord among those who would view as adversaries or competitors in kind of the global struggle for hegemony. It's always acted in accordance with its national self-interest. It's always engaged in nefarious activities, including the creation itself of disinformatia, disinformation, and it's always sought to expand its sphere of influence when it was strong enough to do so. What is it that makes Putin's Russia different from Russian regimes in the past? They're effective. I think, uh, stated simply, the fact that they were able to penetrate uh, American social media and American politics, as they have done, to use another word, they have engaged in also compromise, where they have been able, wittingly and unwittingly, to compromise uh, America. Um, And more substantially, they've taken uh, this project around the world and have been able to uh, sow discord in Europe, in Asia and Latin America, working hand-in-hand in many instances with the Chinese, who are their allies, occasional adversary, but mostly allies. Let's move to the Middle East, and where we see risk, it oftentimes appears that Russia sees opportunity. We see a Middle East in the midst of If you want to look at it at the highest level, a Sunni versus Shia civil war writ large that is burning and Russia has sought to fill a vacuum while in some respects the U.S. has sought to step back and 
in in a sense, invest less blood and treasure in the region, given how poorly it's gone for us in the last 16 years. What does Russia want in the Middle East? They want expanded influence, Ben, and they appear with the Syrian project to have gotten it. The so-called peace conference with uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia is, I think, designed to uh, memorialize their influence and their ability to basically establish uh, in large measure hegemony over the nation. Now, that's an expansive statement, but uh, to the extent that uh, Bashir Assad uh, has managed to consolidate power, the Russians and their Iranian uh, uh, proxies are in really almost total control of those parts of the country not held by the rebels. And Russia, of course, has developed this, at the very least, tacit alliance with Iran through helping them develop their nuclear facilities, as well as, as you just alluded to, the project in Syria and the negotiation of these agreements that have effectively, in bolstering Assad, also bolstered Iran. Russia also makes entreaties to the various Sunni powers in the region in some respects, plays all sides against the middle. Do you think that the U.S. and Russia are ultimately on a collision course over Iran, given that the Trump administration has stated that it seeks to implement a comprehensive plan to constrain Iranian activities? I think it is possible. But what has happened is Putin has managed to basically, through flattery, through power politics and potentially even what I alluded to before, compromise to hold Donald Trump at bay. I mean, if we looked at what he said about Putin and the Russians, he has been much more understanding and tolerant of their activities than certainly I would or pretty much anyone else in American political life would be. And I take that as an unqualified uh, win and an advantage. Uh, for the Russians. So it looks to be like there could be conflict and confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, but the Russians, I think, if anything, uh, are helping to ameliorate, uh, from their perspective, the possibility of full-on conflict. On, on September 11, 2001, one of the first, if not the first, foreign leaders to call President Bush and extend his, his quote-unquote condolences was Vladimir Putin, which I don't think was any accident, but rather, in some respects, an opportunistic attempt to reach out a helping hand and, and quote-unquote, coordinate with the U.S. And there was talk of Russia working with the U.S. in the global war on terror. Do you think that Russia can ever be a reliable partner against jihadists? I don't think they can be, because I don't think they want to be a reliable partner. And the whole point of Putin on the march and Putin's master plan and the Russia-China axis is to say that the Russians have bad intentions. They may well be uh, against jihad, but they're also not against letting jihadists do their business uh, where that is in their interest. I mean, if you take, uh, for example, North Korea, there are credible reports that the um, uh, their weapons program has been enhanced and supported by the Russians and that they've been trading with the North Koreans. And certainly there's been no effort uh, 
a real effort by the Russians to coordinate with the United States to rein in uh, uh, Islamic State, which has been a largely successful, though unreported, uh, project of the Trump administration. So I wouldn't trust the Russians. I don't trust the Russians. And I think most experts at this point view them as skeptically as I do. Earlier, you mentioned the sort of Russia-China detente and now actually an alliance where they work with each other in a variety of strategic spheres to strengthen each other uh, mutually. What is, can you lay out sort of the size, scope, and nature of their relationship today and what the aims of that relationship are? Well, there are basically two arguments in the global political world that are conflicting. One is ours, to simplify, which is support liberal democracy freedom and um, uh, liberal uh, social values of the type that you and I hold dear. The other is non-interference, the sort of tacit argument that democracy has failed, and that we have to support autocrats around the world and extend our influence through economic means, political means, and military means, which is the Chinese and Russian position. And they coordinate at the UN, and they coordinate diplomatically, and they coordinate in terms of their global political efforts. Um, the Chinese did not really object to the Russian incursion into uh, eastern Ukraine and uh, into Georgia. And you certainly haven't seen, as I suggested before, the Russians. Uh, seeking to come to the aid of the United States to reign in the greatest and most serious terrorist threat we face now, which is that from North Korea. So they work together. Uh, They work, as I said, economically, politically, diplomatically, and militarily, and we are at risk. And I make the argument that uh, uh, where conflict could come, if it comes, would be in Europe if the Russians seek to test uh, Article 5 through an incursion like they did in Ukraine in the Baltic. And, and before we turn to Russia's efforts in Europe to exp- expand its sphere of influence, if you were developing a grand U.S. strategy, would you advocate seeking to scuttle through measures overt and covert the sort of Russia-China relationship? And if so, how would you go about creating a wedge? Well, that's a very good question, and I don't have an easy answer. The first thing I would say is we have to acknowledge that it exists. Many serious people that I have dealt with for the last few years first have acknowledged, have not acknowledged that it exists, or said that they're really adversaries, or said that they don't work together consistently. Uh, And I believe, as we have discussed many times, they're working together systematically and. uh, in a variety of different spheres, spheres. I think we have to acknowledge it exists. I think we have to acknowledge the expansionist nature of what they're doing and speak out and be prepared in a variety of different theaters to um, uh, assert ourselves. But economically in uh, Africa and Latin America, the Chinese and in some instances the Russians, countries like Venezuela, have extended their influence, and we don't have there. You know, there's no peep out of the United States. Um, we used to have things like the Alliance for Progress uh, in Latin America. Right now, 
our policy is basically non-intervention. Now to the EU. You've noted that Russia has sought to destabilize various governments there through a hacking and other uh, efforts to influence elections. And there's also kind of a broader narrative where Russia has sought to portray itself, and this is ironic given its communist past, as sort of the leader of Christendom in the world and traditional values. We could argue this is probably a disinformation campaign in some respects. But Russia has held itself up as sort of the great protector of Christianity. And then on the other hand, in e- in the EU, you have this current of Islamization. So growing Islamic populations, cordoned off in quote unquote no-go zones and the like, and the threat of Islamic terror grows and grows. Do you see a situation ultimately where the EU looks to Russia as a potential protector against this Islamization? And is that what Russia is ultimately getting at? I think First, what they're getting at is they want to destabilize the EU and NATO. Part of it is through the alliance that the Russians have built with the Turks, who are a NATO member, not an EU member. Second, I think it is through meddling in elections, uh, supporting the far right and the far left. And even if they don't win, uh, if they influence uh, the right or the left to take policies that uh, are um, supportive of uh, Russian interests, so much the better. And to the extent, as you point out, that immigration undermines the stability of the EU and perhaps individual nations uh, like Germany, um, uh, I think that works to the benefit of the Russians. And I think of many uh, nations uh Indeed, the Germans are part of this. Say, why should we confront the Russians? We do a lot of business with them. Um, they can help us stabilize, and they will destabilize us if we fight with them. So I think it is all of those, all of the above. And I think that the Russians are seeking, at this point, without challenging Article 5, to try to weaken the NATO alliance and uh, the uh, European uh, uh, union. So I think it's a multifaceted strategy, which by and large has worked uh, and worked better than I think most people have acknowledged because um, uh, they are driving uh, the agenda, the Russians, certainly not us and certainly not the forces of liberal democracy. Energy has been one of Russia's greatest levers, including developing pipelines with neighboring states. Uh, through which energy is pumped, and then shutting off those pipelines when it's in its strategic interest to do so. It's been an asset for Russia to date, but you assert that based upon fracking and other technological advances, energy could become a liability for Putin. Explain that. Well, we need to become completely energy independent. And as your question suggests, if we frack and if we drill in the Arctic Basin, we have a chance that we will not need um, uh, anything other than domestic sources of energy. That's hugely beneficial. It will drive down the price of oil. The Russian economy, to a very large extent, is based on oil, on oil. And if we drive down the price and the Russian economy suffers as a result, as it has, it's only to, you know, the anti-fracking, anti-Arctic basin drillers, uh, drilling forces in America would weaken us and make us more dependent on foreign oil which strengthens 
the hands of the Russians. What actions from America do you think Putin would respond to or would change his behavior or calculation significantly about the U.S. will to counter his efforts across the world? Well, first of all, we have to do what Donald Trump has done, which is we need to increase our military budget. We need to uh, substantially upgrade our um, uh, cache of uh, weapons, and we need to upgrade our nuclear arsenal. Plus, we need to make it very clear that we stand behind Article 5, we stand behind our allies, and that we will not, not, uh, you know, uh, kowtow to um, uh, the Russians and where appropriate the Chinese. And, you know, I think it's fair to say whether it be President Obama or President Trump, neither has been as, as assertive as I think we should be and arguably uh, circumstances require us to be. And you noted, you've noted uh, the importance of NATO and also the relationship between Russia and Turkey, who they have a fraught history and they've even almost come to blows quite recently, but now they, it appears, are coordinating. Would you recommend booting Turkey out from NATO, given its own internal politics uh, and the alliances that it's made around the world that are detrimental to NATO's mission? You know, I wish it were possible to do that. I worry that if we did it, it would send a very, very negative message to the Muslim world about our values and alliances. I think what we haven't done is we haven't worked closely enough with the Turkish government to try to provide an alternative source of um, pressure to that which the Russians have uh, exerted. Uh, there are two issues I see uh, now with the Turks. There is the issue of the indictments against the security forces in uh, Washington that came down. There is the gold trader who um, remains, I believe, uh, incarcerated under house arrest here. And the big deal for them is Gulen, who they want extradited. And we haven't. Now, I'm not for abrogating, I'm not for in any way um, unilaterally making concessions to the Turks, but certainly with the gold trader who, or, and the security guard, those are steps that we could take uh, in good faith uh, as bargaining chips with the Turks to try to help get them uh, out of the Russian orbit. In Putin on the March, you speak a bit about the importance of our cyber capabilities and our intelligence capabilities more broadly. As you know, those intelligence capabilities have been uh, abridged or shrunk to some degree in kind of the post-70s United States, where there's been a pendulum swinging back to some degree, some would argue, between uh, civil liberties and national security interests. Do you believe that within the law, we have the tools necessary to adequately counter foes, whether it be Russia, China, or others in the clandestine sphere? You know, my best estimate, and it's only an, an estimate, is that we don't. I worry that we are losing the cyber war to Russia and China. It's one of those things you can't quite... Uh, you know, pick up a newspaper or go to a library 
and read about it, but to the extent that the Chinese through their military and their state and the Russians through hackers who appear to be, if not state-sponsored, but state-tolerated, have wrecked havoc on our business and our uh, uh, military and our, most of all, intelligence capabilities, I worry we're behind the eight ball. And since we're behind the eight ball uh, in terms of intelligence, and there have been more than a few efforts successfully to compromise our uh, the NSA and individual companies like Sony, uh, I worry that uh, uh, we are completely uh, uh, in a weakened position, much weaker than we should be or could be. And would you advocate that we shift from a posture of defense to offense in the cybersphere and in terms of intelligence actions more broadly? Absolutely. I mean, we had some success uh, with the Stutznet virus with, Ar- with Iran uh, destabilizing their uh, weapons program for a year, year and a half. And I believe we, we need to be on the offensive because we're in a war. And if we don't acknowledge that we're in a war, we will lose the war. The name of the book is Putin on the March, the Russian President's Unchecked Global Advance. And we've been speaking with its author, Doug Schoen. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Great. Ben, thank you so much. As always, a great interview. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.